Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And there's a lot going on in the world this week, so let's just get right into it. Derek, Biden has wrapped up his Middle East trip. What happened? Why is this important? And why should our lovely listeners care? Yes, Joe Biden wrapped up his tour of the Middle East on Saturday. He attended a meeting of the GCC Plus Three, which is a group that includes leaders of the six Gulf Cooperation Council members, plus the leaders of Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan. There's a lovely uh, photo of him having a nice chat with Abdel Fattah Sisi. And you may, people presumably saw the picture of him uh, fist bumping uh, Crown Prince, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on his arrival to Saudi Arabia on Friday. All, you know, fine people meeting with the most upstanding uh, folks uh, around the world. I'm, I'm a little sad that they didn't let Biden touch the orb. I don't know if you remember the orb I know. from we the asked, Trump days. We asked I, MBS I, yeah. specifically for that. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, this was a personal request of mine, and apparently they just uh, they just ignored it. <laughs> they don't I guess care Biden's about us like they just, used to. Just doesn't just doesn't rate enough to touch the orb. So uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, and really, not much happened at all. And I, I think um, you know, as a capper on this, which we we've talked about this trip, and you know, for several weeks, uh, there was no signature accomplishment. Biden went to Israel. He went to you know, brief stop in. Uh, the West Bank, and then on to, to Saudi Arabia. There's no signature accomplishment here. He didn't get an agreement from the Saudis on increasing oil production, which he was never going to do. Uh, there's some questions as to whether the Saudis can actually pump any more oil than they're pumping right now. Um, th- they have talked about plans to increase their capacity to something like 13 million barrels per day, but that's something they're going to have to do over time. They're going to have to build refining capacity and all that sort of thing. Uh, so it's unclear that they could actually have responded to that that request. Anyway, uh, there was no big deal on normalizing relations between the Israelis and the Saudis. Uh, there was no deal on any kind of regional military alliance against Iran, which is probably a good thing. Um, and I think bottom line, looking at this trip and why, you know, now that it's over, why did Biden make it? It was mostly just to go and be there and to, like, let people know that America still cares about the Middle East. And if you're thinking about, you know, switching patrons to, let's say, China, don't do that because don't do the United that, States is still here. Yeah, please, please don't do that. Uh, the United States is still here. We're still willing to look the other way while you commit untold human rights violations uh, here in your own country great. or elsewhere. Uh, and so there's no reason, no reason to to go over to China or anything like that. And that's that's really, I think, the point. And, and uh, he was there. He went and going was, you know, in fact, the thing that 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 mattered at the end of the day. Derek, we actually have breaking news. And of course, podcasts are the best um, medium to break news on. But Absolutely, Biden has COVID. Yes. Biden yeah. has COVID. So on the plus <laughs> side, maybe he gave CC COVID. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, you know, uh, obviously we're, we're not uh, Abdel Fattah CC, big friend of the podcast. So uh, wish him, uh, you know, if he's in trouble, wish him any, uh, all the best. But yeah, it's interesting whether he got it while he was traveling or was carrying it or what. Um, I don't know, but he's he's on Paxlovid, which I can say from personal experience, uh, it works. 
I guess it doesn't work for everybody. There's some people who have like bounce back infections. So, uh, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. Please don't take my advice on anything. But I took it and it, it uh, seemed to, to help a lot. So let's stay in the Middle East. And why don't we move to what appears to be a Turkish attack in northern Iraq? Uh, yeah, this just happened on Wednesday and, uh, you know, we're recording on Thursday. So the repercussions are unclear at this point, uh, may wind up being nothing, uh, but it, it, it could be something. Apparently Turkish artillery killed at least nine people and wounded a bunch more, like 20, you know, a couple dozen in what is basically a resort area in Northern Iraq in Dohuk province. Uh, this is a place where Iraqis from the southern part of the country during the summer, if they have, if you were, uh, can afford it, you, you know, come up and, uh, kind of hang out in the northern part of the country because the southern part of the country is essentially uninhabitable at this point, uh, in the summer with the, the, the level of heat that, uh, and, and the fact that the Iraqi government can't provide enough electricity to power air conditioning. So people come up, they, they stay at these resort areas. One of them was bombarded. Uh, it sounds like by Turkish artillery. The world knows that Turkey has never carried out an attack on civilians. We fight against terrorism in accordance with the international law. Now, the Turkish military basically occupies parts of northern Iraq. I mean, it, it, it conducts regular airstrikes, artillery strikes. Uh, it has bases that it, it sometimes occupies uh, in that region because uh, the outlawed uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, which Turkey considers a terrorist group, has a lot of positions in northern Iraq, kind of in isolated mountain regions. Um, so Turkey does attack the PKK or, you know, what it thinks are PKK fighters uh, on a fairly regular basis. Sometimes those attacks do hit uh, oopsie. They hit civilians instead of uh, PKK fighters. Uh, but that said, this seems like something else. I mean, this is an obviously civilian area. It's a resort. There's no indication why the Turks would have fired on this. I mean, I guess you could say it was accidental, but that's a pretty big accident to make um, and, and, and kind of uh, stretches the, the uh, bounds of credulity. The Turks are claiming that they didn't fire on this resort area and that they seem to be trying to blame the PKK, basically, for attacking this place. Uh, there's absolutely no rationale under which the PKK would want to attack uh, an Iraqi resort area that, that that doesn't make any sense. It's, again, conceivable, uh, but but seems like a long shot. Um, the Iraqi government, uh, which generally doesn't say very much about these Turkish operations in northern Iraq because, A, uh, the Iraqi government really doesn't want the PKK in northern Iraq either, and B, uh, it's Turkey and Iraq, and there's a power imbalance there, and what are the Iraqis really going to do? But they, uh, the government, Baghdad, reacted very strongly to uh, Wednesday's incident. It withdrew the head of its diplomatic mission in Ankara, Sharjah affairs. Uh, it summoned the Turkish ambassador in Baghdad. Uh, it may take a complaint to the UN Security Council. So this is this could be a big deal uh, when all is said and done. But again, it, it just happened. So it uh, remains to be seen. Speaking of Turkey, uh, Erdogan and Putin have visited Iran. What's been going on there? Yes. So for the first time since he uh, decided to send his military in to uh, gloriously liberate Ukraine, uh, back in February, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and uh, joined uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, in uh, going abroad to visit Iran. Uh, 
where uh, they had meetings with, uh, well, Putin at least met with uh, Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi and also with Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. Uh, this seems mostly to have been a, an opportunity for Putin and the Iranians to kind of commiserate with one another over their shared experience under a heavy Western sanction uh, to talk about their, you know, strong relationship and how they're going to work together to undermine the U.S. empire. They talked a bit about taking out the dollar, you know, kind of removing the dollar as the global reserve currency, for example, which is a longstanding uh, goal. Well, it has turned uh, the, the relationship between the two countries, which was at best over the past few years, a tactical partnership into a strategic relationship. It's unclear to me how long they can maintain this relationship in the current state of, of sanctions, which have basically made Russia and Iran direct competitors in the Chinese oil market, China being the one country that can sort of flout sanctions and, and buy oil from these two countries. Um, Russia at this point, you know, with its with its oil embargoed essentially in Europe, or at least uh, Europe kind of weaning itself off of Russian oil, the Russians have started selling more oil to China at a steep discount, and they appear to be more or less eating the Iranians' lunch uh, in terms of capturing shares of the Chinese oil market. So uh, that's a that's a potential thorn in the the bromance here. I think that uh, could wind up affecting this relationship quite a bit down the road. But for now, at least they're they're putting on a good face and and trying to. Uh, you know, talk about how uh, how how strong their relationship is. Erdogan's presence here, I'm not entirely sure what it was supposed to fulfill, other than to give both Putin and the Iranians, Khamenei in particular, a chance to kind of dress him down about his plans to uh, undertake another invasion of northern Syria to deal with the YPG, the Kurdish militia there. Um, everybody, you know, everybody else who was there kind of, you know, uh, tried to to warn Erdogan off. Uh, Khamenei talked about uh, how detrimental it would be to the situation in Syria. Uh, Erdogan, for his part, uh, tried to encourage the Russians and the, the Iranians to support him in battling the YPG. I don't think he's going to get very far with that, but that was the big kind of other thing that went on here was the, the discussion of uh, the situation in Syria and the potential the Turkish invasion that's just kind of hanging out there in the ether could begin any time or not, I guess, you know, down the road. So from a larger perspective, if we put this in the context of Biden's trip, there, there seems to be at least attempts to make moves in the Middle East to, to recombine in new ways in order to develop new forms of power blocks. Would you say we're seeing a moment of transition right now, kind of a post-Iraq, pre-whatever comes next liminal moment? I think I mean, I think the moment now that you you have made Russia another one of these outcast nations, along with Iran, uh, Venezuela, etc. The moment here, I think it goes beyond the Middle East. It is a club of countries that are under sanction, basically, and they're going to they're going to try to work together. Uh, as much as they can economically to minimize the impact of sanctions uh, to, you know, oppose the U.S., to kind of undermine, try to undermine the U.S. Um, as much as they can. The, there's there's a limit to that. And uh, as I said, you know, a couple of minutes ago, one of the limits is the effect that these sanctions have on each of these individual countries can pit them against one another to try and kind of stay afloat uh, economically. So, um, you know, it's unclear how far that relationship can go. But of course, the more countries you add to this kind of outcast group, uh, the more you create a network that could, in theory, thrive or at least survive 
as a, as an economic network. Now, Erdogan has relationships with everybody. Um, you know, Turkey has this sort of weird kind of it's it's like a mishmash of uh, two periods in in Erdogan's history as kind of the 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 leader of Turkey. There was a period where he was very much in a uh, no problems with neighbors mindset. Uh, that kind of shifted with the war in Syria and the the Arab Spring. That kind of shifted into a uh, I would say almost a neo Ottoman mindset of like you know turkey is the natural leader of the middle east or whatever he's he seems to be kind of melding them together now i mean he's clearly uh you know tried to maintain a good relationship with russia despite the fact that turkey and russia are on opposite sides of innumerable simmering or frozen conflicts around uh around the region um he's tried to maintain good relations with iran even though there you know also is is tension in that relationship primarily over syria um but you know he's clearly looking to keep these relationships alive, even uh, despite uh, the disagreements that may exist. So why don't we move now to Sri Lanka, uh, which has a new president? Yes. So as was, I guess, expected, I mean, he was considered kind of a slight favorite anyway. The uh, prime minister, former prime minister now of Sri Lanka, uh, Ranil Vikramasinghe, who was acting as president after uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, uh, resigned and fled the country in the wake of massive protests earlier this month. Uh, he has has now been elected by parliament to serve out the rest of Rajapaksa's term. Uh, the vote was on Wednesday. He won 134 votes. The parliament is 225 uh, seats. So it was a relatively narrow majority, not uh, comfortable, I guess, but not super comfortable. Uh, I mentioned this only, I mean, you know, partly this is sort of the uh, climax of a story that we've talked about you know, repeatedly over the past few several weeks, but it also is interesting because uh, the protesters, the same ones who forced Rajapaksa out of office, have been demanding Vikramasinghe's resignation. Also, there is an, some indication that they are displeased with his uh, selection as president to serve out the rest of the term. I haven't seen any reports of like widespread protests. There was one on Wednesday after the vote uh, happened and the news came out it involved uh, some hundreds of protesters in Colombo, uh, which is a large crowd, but certainly nothing like what we saw in Sri Lanka earlier this month. So it remains to be seen how much resistance he's going to get. Now, Vikramasinghe has declared a couple of states of emergencies, put the security forces on high alert. He's talked about the protesters as uh, basically fascists, or at least protest leaders. He's called them fascists. Uh, so he seems prepared to crack down fairly hard if there is a, a, a major uprising against his uh, elevation. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Hey everyone, it's Jake. Just a couple of quick plugs. First, our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. You can go sign up for the free list and also sign up for our free two-week trial for our bonus content, where you can go through the archive, check out our series, take part in discussion threads, and lots of more cool stuff. I also want to plug another podcast, Ones and Twos, with one Adam Twos. He's a foreign policy columnist, history professor, and popular author. He's got this encyclopedic knowledge about stuff from COVID, climate change, to weird food recipes so you can join him along with foreign policy editor cameron abadi as they unpack two numbers each week one from the headlines and the other from way off the news so search ones and twos t-o-o-z-e on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts thanks 
Why don't we move now to uh, Latin America and Jair Bolsonaro's claims of election fraud? Yes. So it is uh, starting to be election season in Brazil. The vote is in October, but uh, campaigns are beginning. The centrist or center left candidate Ciro Gomes uh, announced the start of his campaign this week. And I think just today, maybe uh, Thursday, as we're recording this, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, the, the candidate of the Workers' Party, uh, began his official campaign. He's been, you know, running for a while now, like in quotes, but this is the official start. So it's probably worth pointing out that or worth noting that uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the, the incumbent, uh, continues to lay the groundwork for doing a stop the steal movement basically in October. Uh, he has been long, you know, he's long complained about Brazil's electronic voting system, uh, its insecurity, you know, the the possibility that uh, people could hack in and change results. Uh, it should be noted that this is the same electronic voting system that delivered Bolsonaro to the presidency uh, in 2018, and he didn't complain about security back then, uh, but he is complaining about it now with polling showing him being, you know, running well behind Lula in the first round and then losing to Lula in a, in a runoff. On Monday, he invited, uh, I think, around 40 members of the International Diplomatic Corps uh, in Brasilia to the presidential residence to basically listen to him deliver a screed on the electronic voting system and why it's flawed and dangerous, etc. Uh, he's also proposed to election officials that the Brazilian military conduct its own independent vote count in parallel with elections officials, which I'm sure would have been very fair and impartial. Uh, and yet, you know, even so, the election officials seem to have rejected that idea. I can't imagine why. Anyway, this is this is going on. And I think, you know, he he I would say he's likely to do something in October to try to steal the election. It sound, I mean, he's not going to rig the vote count necessarily. That doesn't sound like what he's laying the groundwork for. Instead, he's going to uh, argue that uh, the election has been stolen from him, yeah, uh, which I'm, could I'm lead to all place, sorts of... Uh, Trump's playbook. Right. I mean, taking uh, right. this I is mean, the Americanization of people talk about the Brazilian uh, Brazilianization of American politics, which is which is true so far as it goes. But you also see this global Americanization, obviously, which many people have spoken to, and this is a direct example of that. He's just stealing from the Trumpian playbook. Yes, I mean, I think he's going to try to do what Trump did, and the question then uh, is whether or not he can see he can succeed at that, which I think hinges on what the Brazilian military does or does not do. I mean, Trump never has, seems to have had the backing of the U.S. military. If he had, things could have gone much different uh, after the election. And uh, I think Bolsonaro maybe has a better relationship. Uh, well, does, I think, certainly have a better relationship with the Brazilian military. Uh, and there's also and just the historical out, fact then, that the military ruled from 64 to 85. Yes. I mean, right. there there is also, you're right, there is this tradition, there's a tradition of military rule in Brazil that, that uh, obviously doesn't exist in the United States. Um, well, we can... <laughs> let's leave uh, that yeah, for another one. Let's leave that for another another discussion. But no, at least overtly, and the military has never directly kind of overtly seized power. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that there is some groundwork here, some kind of um, scaffolding on which you could build a more successful uh, post-election attempt to steal the, the outcome, kind of self-coup, uh, than the one that Trump attempted. So let's take a submarine from Brazil to Italy through the Pillars of Hercules. And Derek, why don't you tell us, um, I'm definitely going to pronounce his name wrong, Draghi's resignation? Draghi's? Mario Draghi, yeah. I think Draghi, Mario it seems Draghi. like a little... 
Yeah. Uh, so what happened uh, in, in, in Italy? It's Italy. Who cares? No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the Italian people. I love, I love all of your, I love everything about that country. Actually, it's one of my favorite places. So uh, the one thing not maybe not to love is the state of Italian politics. Mario Draghi uh, has resigned as prime minister. He was leading a very broad-based national unity coalition uh, that fell apart. Uh, it's been falling apart for a, a little while now, but it came, things came to a head. Last week, uh, there was a no-confidence motion tabled in the Italian Senate. Draghi's government won that vote fairly handily, but one of the parties in his coalition, the uh, notoriously kind of persnickety uh, populist five-star movement, boycotted the vote. Uh, there's been disagreement between Draghi and Five Star over government spending, basically. Five Star wants more assistance to the Italian people to deal with inflation, to deal with, you know, sort of the recovery from the pandemic and 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 that sort of thing. And, and Draghi is quintessentially an austerity guy. He's a former European head of the European Central Bank. I mean, he's that's that's just not him. He's not a, a spender. Um, and so Five Star boycotted this vote. Draghi has said for some time, uh, you know, he's been sort of reluctantly prime minister, I think, this if, this whole time. Uh, he's He said repeatedly that if uh, the coalition, if his coalition breaks apart, if one of the parties leaves, uh, et cetera, he will resign. He has no interest in trying to govern just like a simple majority coalition. He only wants to do this if there's, uh, if most of the, if all the major parties are going to be in the inside of the tent, basically. So he tried to submit his resignation last week after Five Star boycotted this vote. Uh, Italian President Sergio Mattarella uh, rejected it. Uh, told him to go back to the the parliament and give a speech and kind of reassess things. And so Draghi agreed. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, he went back to the Senate, asked for another confidence vote, uh, won it again, but this time three parties boycotted. In addition to Five Star, uh, the uh, conservative Forza Italia party led by a friend of the podcast, Silvio Berlusconi, and the far right league party, both of them boycotted, or all three of them boycotted the vote. Uh, the the two conservative parties basically said they will not serve in a coalition anymore with Five Star. They've had it, uh, and so even though Draghi won the vote, uh, the the confidence vote by his own standards here of keeping the coalition together, uh, it was a, a dismal failure, and so he again submitted his resignation. And Mattarella, I'm seeing now, has uh, agreed to accept his resignation. He's dissolved Parliament, which means there will be a snap election probably in September. Uh, Draghi will serve as prime minister on a on a interim kind of caretaker capacity until then. Uh, but polling indicates that the right wing parties, Forza Italia, the League, uh, the even further right Brothers Party, which isn't in the coalition, it's too extreme even for that coalition, will probably win a collective majority if they if they go into parliament as a block, as they're likely to do. Uh, they will have enough votes to to form the next government. So that's where things stand, basically. So why don't we head a little east, and there's been a lot going on in Ukraine. So first, let's talk about Russia's expanded war aims. So this is, and they're not really expanded, they're sort of officially expanding them, I guess. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, you know, talked to state, uh, Russian state media on Wednesday and declared to them that Russia's war aims in Ukraine have expanded beyond the Donbass. 
you know, they're they're looking at southern Ukraine. They're looking at uh, the, the the coastal areas that the Russians are controlling. Uh, I mean, this isn't a surprise. It's not like a new thing. If you paid attention to the conflict, you know that their aims have been beyond the Donbass. Initially, there were these, you know, kind of quick hit operations to to try and take Kiev and and other cities uh, that failed. And then it th- was at that point that the Russians kind of said, OK, we're just liberating the Donbass. That's the only reason that we're here. But, you know, even as they uh, made that announcement, they had taken Kherson Oblast in southern Ukraine. They'd taken a big chunk of uh, Zaporizhia Oblast, which is in southeastern Ukraine. Um, and these are areas where there are you know, strong indications that that the Russians, or at least the authorities, the Russian appointed authorities in these these places, are laying the groundwork for annexation or for an attempt uh, at annexation. There's still uh, the possibility of the Russians undertaking an operation to seize the city of Odessa, the, the last kind of major Ukrainian port city, which is in the, in the southwest. Um, so none of this is surprising, and it's it's not clear. I think Lavrov's point, uh, if he had one, was to imply that the Russians are only doing this because Western countries are now supplying these long-range artillery systems, the HIMARS from the United States. I think the UK has uh, sent some long-range artillery as well. And that's forced the Russians to adjust their war aims to take uh, you know, territory outside the Donbass. But they were taking territory outside the Donbass before long-range artillery became a thing in this conflict. So uh, it, it doesn't really make much sense other than as a kind of rhetorical bit, I think. There's also been talk about EU sanctions, um, as well as the EU's concerns about natural gas importation from Russia. Yes. Uh, so the EU is working on, uh, and EU ambassadors from all the various member states seem to have agreed in principle on a seventh round of sanctions, like a seventh major round of sanctions uh, that will deal primarily with banning Russian gold exports uh, it will also intensify bans on sales of high-tech items to Russia. There's no specifics on any of this because, uh, again, they've only sort of agreed in principle. They have to get into the details before they're uh, made public, and then you know you know exactly what's going on here. Uh, gold is a is a major Russian export. Once you get outside of the energy sector, it's probably uh, I think it's Russia's biggest export. Um, nevertheless, this is a, a fairly subdued uh, tranche of sanctions compared with, say, the oil uh, decision that came, uh, you know, was the previous kind of big sanctions move. And uh, the still lingering possibility of an EU uh, embargo on Russian natural gas. Now, that's where uh, we get into the concern uh, that European Union leaders seem to have that they're about to get cut off, that Russia is going to make this decision, the natural gas decision for them uh, and cut Europe off. There's been a lot of concern uh, about the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, not to be confused with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is not operational and has been frozen because of the the, the Ukraine war. Um, Nord Stream 1 went down for annual maintenance on July, I think, 11th. Uh, there was a lot of concern uh, within the European Union that Gazprom, the Russian natural gas firm, would just leave it shut off. Uh, it's supposed to be a 10-day maintenance period. Uh, there was concern that Gazprom would just leave it off. Gazprom had already cut gas flows to around 40% of capacity through that pipeline, which is, uh, you know, difficult enough challenge for 
EU governments to to manage with uh, you know winter potentially coming on here. It turns out that these fears that that the pipeline would be permanently shut down or just turned off altogether were maybe a bit overblown because as far as I know, it has now been ten days, and as far as I know, Gazprom did turn the pipeline back on on Thursday, but it did so at the lower level. I think I think it went back to forty percent, but I'm not a hundred percent clear on that. So this is a concern for the EU. They are going to have to find some alternatives. They released, the EU released a a winter energy plan on Wednesday talking about uh, minimizing gas consumption, prioritizing things like hospitals to ensure that uh, there's there's no interruption to to essential services. But it's not going to be as bad as a a full shutoff unless, you know, between now and then, I guess, uh, Gazprom rethinks things and decides to, to totally shut down the pipeline. Let's talk now about, um, there's been discussion of sending jets to Ukraine. So this was in the Washington Post uh, on Wednesday, uh, reported that uh, the U.S. and uh, European countries are kind of tossing around the idea, which uh, people may recall was uh, considered and discarded uh, early on in this conflict, uh, of supplying Ukraine with fighter jets. Uh, It is... This is very much in the kind of discussion stage. There's no specific plan to do this, but it does seem clear that if the U.S. and or Europe go ahead with this, they're going to supply Ukraine with Western aircraft. The, the previous idea was to, to say, have Poland or some other kind of former Soviet bloc country in Eastern Europe that's, that's now part of NATO uh, send their planes, their MiGs, which Ukrainian pilots would be familiar with, uh, to Ukraine. From and Top then, Gun. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> um, and then those countries would would get, you know, kind of swanky Western aircraft F-16s or what have you. Uh, that's not what, what appears to be under discussion now. It, it looks like they're talking about just directly supplying Ukraine with Western aircraft. There were concerns previously that the logistical challenge of trying to get fighter planes into Ukraine would be difficult, if not impossible, to overcome, and that doing so would risk escalating the war into a conflict between Russia and NATO. I have no idea what's changed on either of those fronts, maybe nothing. Uh, And now you're adding a new complication in that you're going to have to to intensively train uh, Ukrainian pilots into how in, uh, into flying uh, and you know flying these Western aircraft, which are going to be very unfamiliar to them. So I have no idea how they uh, imagine this would come off if they actually decide to go ahead with it. But I, I do think. Uh, on some level, this was inevitable. Uh, the pressure to supply Ukraine with ever stronger and more intense weaponry was never going to go away. Uh, that's how we got to the point where uh, the U.S. and the U.K. are sending these long-range artillery units because it's just like you're committed now. You're committed to a Russian defeat. You're committed. To, you can't stop. You can't stop rolling the dice in the casino now because the pot's too big. Um, so they're just going to keep doing this. I think they're just going to keep doing this. And 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 obviously, there's also the the defense contractor element. I mean, we talk at times about the extent to which money dictates U.S. foreign policy and defense money uh, in particular. And and you know, defense contractors are no doubt salivating at the prospect of just kind of remaking the entire Ukrainian military uh, with the biggest and most expensive Western armaments possible. 
So why don't we end on a, a news story that many of our listeners are probably aware of, which is this brutal European heat wave that has already resulted in, in quite a few deaths uh, and I think augurs uh, the future of climate politics and, and how devastating they're going to be. So Derek, what do we need to know about the heat wave? So, yeah, there's been uh, just a historic heat wave, essentially, uh, that's that's gone through uh, much of Western Europe, France, uh, Spain, Portugal. Uh, now the UK is the latest. I think the UK, you know, high temperatures top uh, 40 degrees Celsius for the first time uh, on record uh, just a couple of days ago. But haven't we always had hot weather John, I mean, wasn't the 76, the summer of 76, that was as hot as this, wasn't it? Uh, no. Uh, and, you know, we are seeing more and more records, more and more frequently and more and more severely. But it's killed. The, the heat wave has killed. Uh, I mean, you talked about uh, the death toll. Uh, the latest I've seen is somewhere over 2000 people. Uh, many, most of those, I think, in Spain and Portugal. It's also contributed, I would imagine, to the wildfires that are raging across a lot of southern Europe, uh, including Spain, Greece, Italy. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of really horrific outcomes here. And, yeah, I think this is the new normal. This is the state of, of where we are with climate change. Again, it's, it's, you talk about future impacts. The impacts are happening now and and they're happening they're just it's just that they're concentrated in certain areas i mean i mentioned uh, iraq earlier you know the the gulf region is is um you know really i mean temperatures are almost inhumane uh in the summer months every year anymore and and you've seen i think this is the second year in a row at least i don't know you go back further than that but uh, of seeing these like just unprecedentedly high temperatures and wildfires all around the mediterranean basin i mean just just a terrible impact and it's it's not these aren't isolated events these are part of a trend and thankfully they're a trend that joe biden has stepped up to arrest and we can get into that dismal event uh, if you want <laughs> let's end on that yeah, dismal event let's end on that biden delivered a speech uh on wednesday on the subject of climate change this is in the wake of I guess a friend of the pod, Joe Manchin, torpedoing any attempt to actually do something meaningful on climate change in the Senate. And so Biden, you know, has promised that he's going to take action. He's going to take executive action. So he delivered a speech on Wednesday in which he called climate change an emergency, but then didn't actually declare it an emergency. I mean, presidents can do this. They can declare national emergencies. It frees up funding. It frees up all sorts of things that you can apply to the problem. He didn't do that. So he called it an emergency, but wouldn't declare it an emergency, which is incoherent enough. Uh, he announced a few projects to affect, uh, to kind of kickstart offshore wind farms in the Gulf of Mexico and allocated $2.3 billion, which I'm pretty sure is what you'd get if you like took the secretary of defense and like held him upside down and shook his pockets out. Uh, that's what would fall out for projects to help American communities cope with uh, rising temperatures, so to deal with uh, people who are particularly vulnerable uh, health-wise. All of these, you know, fine things, I guess. Not exactly what you would expect to see in terms of a response to an emergency uh, when it's clear that Congress is not going to do anything. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a bit hard to, to take this seriously, I guess. But um, it is what it is. 
I have full faith in our president and our system, Derek. And on that happy note, <laughs> we will see you all tomorrow, next week. Um, all that good stuff. Bye, Derek. Bye. Bye.